to the Music Taz podcast. In this episode, we hear from Nipolona Hobart-based radio queens, the Sisters Acousmatica, Julia Drawen and Philippa Stafford. The Sister Acousmatica's expansive radio projects explore transmission possibilities through voice, radio receivers and transmitters, amplified mineral samples, rekindled transistor parts, pulsar, wind, waves and words. Their recordings are concerned with collective electromagnetic practices and ownership of the airways located in high magnetic latitude in the southern hemisphere. Earlier this year, they drove their vehicle of transmission, Brum Brum, at Junction Arts Festival in Launceston, setting up in various public spaces where audience could draw on the car and take control of hyperlocal airwaves. In this episode, they interview Dr Warren Hankey, an expert on globular clusters at the Grote Reber Museum in Cambridge, a short distance drive from Hobart. Dr Hankey is a member of the Sound Preservation Association of Tasmania and shares the sister Acousmatica's interest and knowledge of radio waves around Lutruwida, Tasmania. They speak about an impromptu sewage sound and lament a horde of musical wind creatures. All the sounds you will hear in this episode were researched, performed and recorded on the unceded land of the Palawa people between 2017 and 2021. Radio waves transcend borders. Essayez de les toucher. Cette fréquence est-elle chaude, piquante, douce, résistante Cette onde radio est née sur la ligne entre le sable et l'eau, entre le rocher et l'air. 5 mm au-dessus de la surface ou 50 km sous l'horizon. Comment ce que nous ne pouvons pas voir peut-il être possédé Un spectre les relie. Elles ondulent sans se croiser, forme fermée sur elles-mêmes, centrées sur les forces centrifuges. Elles taillent leur chemin dans les airs denses d'un monde étouffé. établit les limites invisibles. 
everyone in the room and all the frequencies and ghosts, thank you very much for being with us today. We are in Belarive, Sound Preservation Association of Tasmania, SPAT. My name is Ray McNabb. My role is I'm the president of the association, so I look after the overall running of the museum. Being a, a museum of sound, our goal is to collect, preserve and share. So we are developing our display so that we will have a timeline from the uh, late 1800s right through to uh, 2020 and tell the story of the sound. And we'll be doing things like having a Morse code, pretend they're on the Titanic sending the SOS signals and things like that which kids love. It really gets them involved and excited. Pat is welcoming live events yes, and live music yes, surrounded by objective sounds that are about to be alive again. The late Gwen Demden, she opened it in 1985. At that stage it was for collecting 78 uh, RPM records because she saw that they were being dumped, no one was keeping them or looking after them and she wanted to preserve those recordings for, for history. She started that and then they expanded it into the equipment to play those recordings as well. And then over the years, uh, it's built up to cover all forms of sound reproduction, uh, sound recordings, and then the equipment to play it on. Can you actually preserve everything? No. Uh, some things you can't. They may be too degraded to preserve them. Uh, all we can do is to attempt to... Uh, what, we, what we would say is uh, to stabilise the medium that it's on and then to uh, if we can duplicate that uh, but it may not be of the original quality but at least it will stop further degradation. I think you also fix things. Yes uh, a lot of people come through they have old equipment and there's nowhere that they can have these fixed in Tasmania so uh, we've got various volunteers in our organisation with skills in different areas so if something comes in, we can direct that to one of our volunteers who can look after that and repair it for the people. These units, like this uh, record changer and then the early radio in there, most of the times they were in big cabinets and they formed the centrepiece of the home, the living room uh, and so you could have big speakers there because they got to feel the sound as they were coming through and uh, which you can't get on it today on a small radio, you still don't get that feeling, there's no transmission of, of as you say vibration or that through you and that unit there, uh, when it first came into production um, it was called a salonola and that was the cabinet 
that was in that it was in big polished walnut cabinets and or you know made out of Tasmanian uh, timbers and that and they were big units and they really formed the centerpiece of the home much like today you have it in the big screen TVs um, but for those in they were way before TV so they had big cabinets giving people the the centerpiece they would all sit around and listen to what was being played in the um, early days in radio uh, where of course there was no visual element in there when they uh, they would paint the visual picture by the sound so if you took what was very popular say uh, the broadcast of a test match between Australia and England the commentators would sit there and they would describe everything that that happened, what type of ball was it bowled, you know, how hard did the batsman hit it. They would have microphones to record the crowds cheering and then they would even have, separate to the broadcaster, uh, someone who created the sounds, like created the sound of the ball hitting the bat uh, because they couldn't have a microphone right up near where the batsman was so they created that sound in the studio and... um, it was often uh, the broadcasts were delayed from the reality by often a minute or so, so that they could create those sounds. So they would they would paint the picture of what was happening on the field through the sounds that they were broadcasting, and people learned to visualise that. They would hear the sound and then they would think, yes, that's what's happening, and their mind would paint the picture of what was really going on. Technology in the early days was driven to how long they could make the sound last. And uh, they would sit there and turn it round with their uh, pen or whatever stuck in the centre of it and make a sound, which for the people they were working with was quite amazing. They'd never heard anything like that. Someone's voice on a little flat thing with a cardboard player. That was developed for uh, places where there's no electricity. These records are all produced prior to 1956, so there's no existing copyright on them. It has expired on these, so they are useful for playing to people. You've got the grooves going zigzagging along the record and the little needle sits in that groove and zigzags with it and it's connected just to a sheet of cardboard which is then vibrating so you hear the sound from the sheet of cardboard. Technology has developed to be greater than what our brain can take in. Sewage. Sewage. This is a local sewage system sound, like a giant record player.
we dissolve into specks of dust carried in ocean waves and wind to still our distance. Radio waves will carry on without human, bouncing off planets, signaling a moment.
Dr. Warren Hankey. PhD on uh, globular clusters, so little mini galaxies that orbit our galaxy. Great Reaver Museum. He built it in the 1960s, and it was out at Bothwell, a radio quiet valley, away from transmitters, away from Hobart. And it was also a, a flat bottom valley. So he set up an antenna array on the floor of the valley. So a big plain about a couple of kilometres across, I think. Hundreds of uh, individual antennas that were phased together. So it was a phased array that he could steer across the sky. So only transmissions from certain parts of the sky could be, would be in phase at, at certain times. And I think that was all done with analogue delays. I think he was quite deaf. A whistle kind of sound, like descending kind of tone when they're converted to audio. He'd, li he'd listen on his headphones because he could pick atmospherics from uh, cosmic radiation. So atmospherics are caused by lightning all around the world. You see those pictures from the space shuttle with all you can see like lightning flashing all over the world and they create radio waves that travel all around the world. And I think they, they have the whistling kind of sound because of frequency dispersion. And yeah, he was just super frugal, built a solar passive house as well. Uh, just using, had a big, one big wall covered in glass to soak up, uh, let the sunshine in and stones inside to soak up the heat, I think. Yes, and uh, if he was corresponding with people, he'd recycle, he'd re reply to them on the back of their piece of paper and recycle the envelope and, and like I said, just use pencils until there was nothing left to hold on to. Yeah, just super frugal. And if he ever any food going for free, he'd fill his pockets up with food and things like that. He had to spend money except on his experiments, except on his science. I think that was his motivator, save money for building antennas. He was the very first person to build, uh, measure radio waves coming from space back in the late 1930s. Um, so he was a uh, ham radio operator. So we put the big antenna up in your backyard. It's tens of metres long and on a big pole. And, you know, you can chat to someone in Russia, chat to someone, you know, transcontinental communi amateur communications. Uh, but he'd read, he'd sort of done all that, but he'd read about static just coming from the sky and no one knew really where it was coming from. It was just this background kind of noise, pretty low-level noise, so no one really worried about it. It wasn't an impediment to communication. But uh, to, to locate it, he had to build a very directional antenna. So he built the very first radio dish. His was about 30 feet across, 10 metres or so. And he built that in his mum's backyard. And just using his ham radio equipment, just a, a radio tuner, you know, with valves and a power meter. So as the Milky Way went over his dish, he could see his power meter go up. Our antenna is uh, a lot more directional than Groats. And he was working at very low frequencies, like hundreds of metres, and we're working at centimetre frequencies. So we don't really get those atmospherics. Yeah, where Groat was working, electric motors, spark plugs in cars, all those kind of uh, things would generate low-frequency noises, and he was trying to pick cosmic noise from all the surrounding natural low-frequency radio. So uh, it's not really a problem for us. We don't really convert it to audio. But you can listen to Jupiter and, and things like that. How do we listen to Jupiter? 
Oh, Jupiter's got a super strong magnetic field. Jupiter's almost like a failed star, a brown dwarf that never got, you know, big enough to create fusion and glow. But it's got a very strong magnetic field and there's a lot of auroral activity around Jupiter and its magnetic fields. And part of that's fed by its moon Io, too, I think. Io's a very volcanic moon and those... Uh, Particles interact with Jupiter's magnetic field too and create um, geomagnetic storms around the poles. And those, just like the aurora on Earth, it would be uh, charged particles spiralling around the magnetic field lines at the poles, creating synchrotron radiation of some kind. No, it just keeps radiating out forever. And also, Jupiter's quite close to us in cosmic terms, but you wouldn't it just loses power. All that power spreads over a larger and larger area as it heads out. And so, yeah, it'd be pretty weak by the time you got outside the solar system. That's why picking up alien communications is pretty unlikely, unless someone's deliberately beaming towards us, sort of beamed radiation with lots and lots of power. Even from the nearest star, you probably need a transmitter with megawatts of power to reach Earth because uh, the power just dissipates as it spreads and spreads over a large and large area. And it's a really long way, even to the nearest star. Trillions and trillions of kilometres. Usually the smaller the kids are, the bigger the questions. What is space and how big is this and where's the edge of the universe? Space is just like empty, but it's also alive with radiation and light and there's no up and down in space and things are drawn to each other by gravity the way we're pulled down to the earth by gravity so our earth moves around the sun we talk about that and the moon and seasons and all this is moving around in space and then we're all moving very fast you don't feel like you're moving but you're actually moving at thousands of kilometers per hour and also our whole sun is moving around the galaxy Every 200 million years, we go around the galaxy. And so time time and space, too, are related in the sense that the further something is away, the further we see it back in time as well. Because the time, the light takes to get here. So looking out at the stars, it's like a time machine. You're seeing stars and galaxies as they were thousands or millions of years ago. Yeah, they're used for radio astronomy and geodesy like locating the Earth in space because the Earth wobbles around a lot as it moves around the sun and the length of the day changes and the ground moves, tectonic plate movement and Earth tides so we can measure those. And we measure those with extreme accuracy because we have an atomic clock there. So we've got the best clock in Tasmania, atomic hydrogen laser clock. Afterglow of the Big Bang, like a sort of the heat after that happened. The Big Bang was trillions of degrees temperature, and by now it's cooled down to about three degrees above absolute zero, minus 270 degrees. But at that temperature, it's emitting radio, which you can pick up. Because there's so much of it, even though it's really weak, there's so much of it, it's everywhere in the universe, so you can pick it up. A hydrogen maser, so it's like a laser, a very specific and rigid frequency, but at microwave 
frequencies at uh, 1.4 gigahertz. So it's a clock that ticks 1.4 billion times a second. And so that gives us millimetre accuracy at light speed. So we can measure the distance from our telescope to Hawaii to within less than a centimetre, from here to South Africa, you know, 10,000 kilometres less than a centimetre. So repeated observations with all these telescopes around the world. We do lots of international collaborations. Then we can see the telescopes moving around as the tectonic plates move as Australia moves northeast at about four to six centimetres a year. So we can measure that movement in the Earth. And, but in the 60s and 70s, radio telescopes were actually able to measure the movement of the Earth because all those distant galaxies are practically at infinity and they're fixed in a celestial reference frame. And you can see the Earth moving around inside inside the stars. So the receivers that are up in the radio telescope are a bit like musical instruments. They resonate and vibrate with the incoming radiation way out in space. Form standing waves, much like a, a trumpet or a flute or a trombone. Similar wavelengths and similar physical scales. So radio waves are more human scale, atomic kind of scales. Radio waves are a human kind of wavelengths.
You have been listening to the Music Taz podcast. This podcast is supported by Arts Tasmania and the Australian Council of the Arts. For more episodes, music and sounds from Tasmania, please visit musictasmania.org. Until next time, enjoy the music.